We thank the Lord for bringing each and every one of you to Webster Bible Church this morning. Uh, we trust that the service has been an encouragement to you so far. And uh, most importantly, it is our prayer that Christ would be the treasure of your life. That Christ would be the wellspring of your soul. Uh, because the things of this world don't satisfy. And uh, the things that we tend to chase after are gone before we know it. Uh, and our very life is over before we know it. The Bible says our life is but a vapor. We are soon gone and we fly away. And then what? And then what? Will your end be eternal death separated from the glory of God? Or will it be eternal life because you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 934 in the Pew Bible. And we'll get to that text in just a moment, but I want to begin our time with a question. And that question is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? <laughs> if you were to go out uh, in virtually any public venue today and ask people that question, you would probably get a very wide variety of answers. If we want to know what a Christian really is, we must go back to the origin of that term, which is in the New Testament. We're told in Acts eleven twenty six that in Antioch of Syria, the disciples were first called Christians. And uh, the disciples were not calling themselves Christians. Uh, the non-Christians were calling them Christians. Uh, they identified them as followers of Christ. And it was not a um, term of endearment. <laughs> it was a term of derision. It, it was mocking them for following Christ because they followed a crucified Savior, a crucified Messiah whom they worshiped. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said unashamedly, we preach Christ crucified and he went on to say that he's a stumbling block to the Jews and he is a foolishness or it's foolishness to the Gentiles. And Paul would go on to say in that same letter, 1 Corinthians, we are fools for Christ. And so what started out as a term of derision became a badge of honor for all those who follow Christ. They were proud to be called Christians. They were uh, honored to be considered as followers of the crucified and risen Lamb of God. Elsewhere, Scripture says that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, not with gold or silver or other perishable things, but we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that we belong to Him. That's why Scripture says that we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Scripture says we make it our aim to please Him, to glorify Him in everything that we do, even eating and drinking. And that's why we read Romans 6 just a few moments ago. It reminds us that at one time we were slaves of sin. But now, by God's grace, we are slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of God. We are slaves of Jesus Christ, our blessed Master. 
I find it interesting that the New Testament writers eagerly attributed the title slave of Christ to themselves and others. The word Christian literally means belonging to Christ. And along with that, they proudly referred to themselves as slaves of Christ. The Greek word is doulos. That's the Greek word for slave. It appears about 124 times in the New Testament. And while it often refers to physical slavery or servitude, in at least 40 of those 124 uses, it is used to refer to believers and their relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord, their master, their sovereign. According to Scripture, everyone is a slave. Did you catch that as we read Romans 6? Scripture teaches that every single person is a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness, a slave to God, a slave to Christ. And some are slaves to Christ and to human masters, albeit in a different sort of way. And that's why at the beginning of 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, the word there is doulos, douloi, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. If you go back to chapter 3, you'll note in the middle of the chapter that Paul expressed his purpose in writing this letter to Pastor Timothy. Paul says, uh, I, I hope to come to you, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing to you so that you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God how one ought to behave in the household of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the theme of chapter 5 that we've been looking at the last few weeks is treat one another like family. Uh, and this applies to <clears throat> Christians across all age and gender spectrums. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul, Paul talks about encouraging older men and younger men, older women and younger women. Uh, this same principle applies to the leaders of the church, the pastors, the elders, the, the overseers. And now Paul is extending this principle uh, to other leaders in our lives, namely those in the workplace. How are we to treat them? He's talking about employers, both Christian and non-Christian. And, and that's why the term bondservant is used here in Romans 6.1. Uh, the Greek word is doulos. As I said, it, it, it's translated in many places in the New Testament as slave, such as Romans 6, uh, which we read just moments ago. But here, the translators of the English Standard Version that, that we tend to teach and preach from here at Webster Bible Church chose to use not the word slave, but the word bondservant. And there's a reason they did that. And, and there can be a lot of background information that can be shared, uh, but I'm going to try to do it as succinctly as possible, especially because certain things come to our mind when we picture slavery. So if you have an ESV Bible, I want you to turn 
to its very beginning, even before Genesis, in the preface of the ESV Bible. And if you don't have an ESV Bible on you, uh, you can actually use the Pew Bible. That also has a preface. I believe every ESV Bible has a preface to it, regardless of who the publisher is. And in my Bible, and I think in the Pew Bible, on page 9, that's Roman numeral 9, it looks like a capital I, capital X. In the preface, there's this heading called the translation of specialized terms. Do you see it? The translation of specialized terms. And in the third paragraph, which conveniently begins with the word third, (laughs) it says this. Third, a particular difficulty is presented when words in biblical Greek and Hebrew and Greek after uh, or refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. <clears throat> Such is the case in the translation of Abed, Hebrew, in doulos, Greek terms, which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that requires a range of renderings, slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words abed and doulos have been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily uh, to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or involuntarily uh, by birth, by being captured in battle, or by judicial sentence. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. In New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years, except for those in Caesar's household in Rome who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master and officially declared a freed man. The ESV usage thus seeks to express the most fitting nuance of meeting in each context, where absolute ownership by a master is envisaged, as in Romans 6, slave is used, where a more limited form of servitude is in view, bondservant is used. And I'll stop there. And hopefully that makes sense. It gives you enough of an explanation to to give you the context of what we're reading here in 1 Timothy. That's why the word bondservant is used. And uh, because that's the case, I've entitled this sermon, The Conscientious Christian Employee. The Conscientious Christian Employee. That's a title I stole from John MacArthur's commentary. And I think it's a decent title or a decent heading over this section because while the parallel between bond service and first century Greco-Roman world is not exactly the same as employment in uh, our day, uh, it is also very different from what we think of as uh, the slave trafficking industry that uh, plagued 
um, our nation and that of other Western nations during the 19th century. All right, so the parallel's not exactly the same, but there are some commonalities between someone that was inscripted for service for a set period of time. It was a contractual arrangement by which he got paid for his services and then released. And so I think there are principles of application that we can draw from Romans 6, 1 and 2 that would be most helpful to us as we think about our own work situations as present-day Christians. In his book, The Challenge of Preaching, John Stott wrote, we have to study both the ancient text and the present scene, both scripture and culture, both the word and the world. It is a huge task demanding a lifetime of study. And I'll simply say amen to that. Um, and that the concept of slavery, even as taught in the Bible and the Old and New Testament, is way too broad a topic. It's a worthy topic to study in depth, but it's, it's way too broad a topic to cover in a sermon like this. And that's why I read to you that preface to the ESV translation of the Bible, so that we would at least get a sense of the context of 1 Timothy and how the word doulos is being used there. Um, the key thing to remember is that slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world while not exactly like employment in our day, was also radically different from the type of slavery that usually comes to our mind when we think of it. That's the main point I want us to get as we go to 1 Timothy 6. Uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, says this. He notes that slaves in the time of Paul were often paid a wage, some were even known to accrue considerable wealth. Beyond this, some slaves were highly educated. In fact, many slaves could read and write and would often serve as the household scribe for employers who were themselves illiterate. Moreover, how and why people became slaves in the Roman world was very different. For one, it was not due to their skin color or ethnicity. Often people voluntarily became slaves as a means to achieve a minimal level of financial security. And this was usually for a limited duration of time. It is precisely for this reason that many English translations of the Bible don't use the word slave in certain contexts, but prefer the word bondservant. The latter term more accurately captures the situation in the time of the first century. All right? So that ends the quote. And so our purpose is here. Let's draw away some key principles for Christians today in our own work environment. And the primary point is this. Glorify God by being the best employee you can. If we were to take 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 and say, okay, what is the bottom line principle for believers in the workplace today? It would be this. Glorify God by being the best employee you can. As soon as I was thinking about that, I thought, man, how this flies in the face of songs that I heard growing up, uh, like Take This Job and Shove It by Johnny Paycheck, or even kind of the, 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 the lighter, not quite as intense, uh, Working 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. I was rereading some of those lyrics, and they do not view the bosses favorably at all uh, in that song. 
And those songs, I think the reason they're, they're so popular or were so popular is that they, 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 they unearth the, the magnitude of dissatisfaction that rumbles beneath the surface of a lot of workplaces. In fact, current statistics show that, that 53% of Americans are unhappy in their job. And, and we've got it at least culturally, nationally, about as good as most people do in other parts of the world, which is why 85% of people worldwide are very dissatisfied in their jobs. Job dissatisfaction costs employers 450 to $550 billion annually due to disengagement, absenteeism, and simply employee turnover. And against this tide of discontent and disengagement stands the truth of God's Word. (laughs) Particularly here in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, where the Spirit of God gives Christians the opportunity to be different. To shine as God's lights in what is often a dark place. So I pray that we will will give ear to the Word of God this morning and listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us in this passage. First of all, the precept. Look at the beginning of verse 1 of 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now even if we don't see a super close parallel between first century bond service and employment in our day, here's what I would submit to you. If this was a principle for them to obey, a precept for them to obey in that situation, how much more should it apply to us in our situation? Even as we argue from the lesser to the greater, if you want to go that route. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And we should note that that phrase, under a yoke, doesn't necessarily indicate an abusive or tyrannical relationship. After all, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will have rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sin is a tyrannical master. Jesus is a gracious, benevolent master. He is one who laid down his very life and rose triumphantly from the grave to make us his treasured possession so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with God forever and ever. Listen, friends, submitting yourself to Jesus Christ as your master and savior is the greatest liberation you will ever experience. It is the greatest freedom you will ever know. Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Being a slave to Christ is the greatest freedom you will ever know. Sin is a tyrannical master. Jesus is a benevolent, kind, and gracious master. Submitting yourself to Christ is the greatest liberation you'll ever experience because it is only through Christ that you will ever become all that God created you to be. 
And that includes being a good and faithful servant. And that's why Christian servants are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That word regard could be translated esteem. The, the Greek term literally means what goes in front, and it has to do with the leading thought in a person's mind. Now think about that. The leading thought in a person's mind. We use the expression, what's at the forefront of your mind, right? That's what this is talking about. Let believers regard their employers, their masters in the first century. Let them regard them as worthy of all honor. So when you think about your role in the workplace, as you think about your supervisor, your boss, your employer, it is the thought that it, that's at the very forefront of your mind this. That man or that woman is worthy of all honor. I didn't find that in Johnny Paycheck's song or Dolly Parton's song. I don't find it in most conversations, even among Christians, regarding their employer. But that's what it means. The leading thought of one's mind is to regard employers, masters, as worthy of all honor. It's interesting that the mindset is not based on, on how good your boss is or how you feel about your boss or supervisor. It's about doing what is right before the Lord, who is our ultimate master. And he is the master who has, who has placed that particular boss, employer, supervisor over us in our work situation. Paul expounds on this concept in, in two other passages. Let me share them with you. First of all, there's uh, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8, where the same term is used. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Then again, over in Colossians 3, to 25 similar exhortation is given. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So in that second passage, uh, Paul gives us both positive and negative reasons for obeying our earthly masters or employers. The positive reason is this. Even if your boss doesn't recognize or reward you for your faithful service, guess who will? The Lord will reward you because ultimately you are serving the Lord Christ. The negative reason to obey 
your earthly master or employer is that if you don't honor your boss by serving with a good attitude and diligent effort, then the Lord is going to pay you back for the wrong that you've done. In other words, you will be disciplined by God because God doesn't play favorites. As our ultimate master, God insists that we honor our earthly employers. And what's the purpose for this? What's the purpose of this precept in verse 1? Well, we're given the purpose in the second half of verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That word reviled is the Greek term blasphemeo, from which we get the word blaspheme. It means to speak evil against or to speak lightly of sacred things, to mock them. And this is a great reminder, listen, that your job is not ultimately about you. It is about God and how you are representing your Lord in your workplace. If you are lazy, undependable, disrespectful, always griping about this or that, showing up late, criticizing your superiors, then you are giving God a bad reputation. Your non-Christian boss will say, Take your faith and shove it. Right. They'll just say, hey, if that's how your religion teaches believers how they're supposed to behave, guess what? You can keep your Christianity to yourself. Because I don't want workers like you. The worst consequence of a poor work ethic or a bad attitude would not be getting a bad performance review it would not be getting a demotion or a cut in pay or even getting fired. The worst consequence would be you're giving God a bad rap. By dishonoring your employer, you're actually discrediting God's own name. And you are disgracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine if that thought entered our mind when we were prone to argue with our supervisor or to complain or gripe behind their back. But I'm not really harming my supervisor. What I'm really doing is I'm harming the cause of Christ. I am giving God a bad reputation where I am at work. As believers, we want to have the very opposite effect, don't we? Paul talks about this positive purpose. He states the negative one here uh, in you know, 1 Timothy 6.1, so that the name of Christ and the teaching may not be reviled, not be blasphemed. But he gives the positive side of that in Titus 2, 9 and 10, where he says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What does it mean to adorn something? He, he's saying here, by showing ourselves to be entirely trustworthy and good as employees, we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Now that doesn't mean that uh, it's been said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. People may still reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But as a, 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 a previous professor and pastor who's now with the Lord used to say, if the gospel is an offense, praise God, but if I'm an offense, that's sin. Our role is to make the gospel beautiful, attractive in every way in the workplace. Because it is beautiful, it is attractive, and we know that. We want to accurately represent that wherever we're employed. I found this to be the case during my first year of seminary. Just 22 years old, Ruthie was 20, we had just gotten married and moved. Uh, When we got our first paycheck, we had $7 to our name. And uh, we both uh, applied for a job at this uh, family-owned home center in our community that was kind of like an upscale version of Lowe's or Home Depot. Um, While I was going to to seminary, I got a job, Ruthie got a job to to help with that. We both applied at the same place, and and she was hired as a cashier, and I was hired to work in the paint department. And uh, the owner of the company, it was a huge company, um, personally interviewed and hired every single employee. I didn't know it when I met with him. I thought it was like the foreman in the lumber yard who was interviewing me, came in with a plaid shirt and jeans and everything. I had no idea who he was, found out at the end of the meeting that he was actually the owner and CEO of the company. And uh, when he found out about our story and, and that I was a seminary student, he hired me and my wife on the spot because he said, I've worked here for many years and the best employees I have ever had come from that seminary. Now, I don't know if this man was a Christian. I think he would have claimed to have been a Christian. But one thing I do know, he was very impressed with the work ethic of Christians in that home center. And then I later found out, he didn't tell me, but some of the faculty and staff at the the school did, is that over the years he was so appreciative of what great employees were is that he donated tens of thousands, maybe even a hundred or more thousand dollars worth of carpet and other building materials to the seminary to help them, free of charge, just to, to bless them because they had been such a blessing to his company. So my question is, what kind of impression are you making on your employer? What kind of impression are you making on your employer, your boss, your supervisor? Do you see that Paul's exhortation here in 1 Timothy 6 has a missionary motivation? He doesn't want the name of God to be blasphemed. He doesn't want the Christian faith to be mocked. It will be mocked, but he doesn't want it to be mocked because you're representing what, misrepresenting what Christianity really is. Paul's exhortation here and in other places has a missionary motivation. Your non-Christian boss should witness your work ethic and attitude as a believer and be drawn, at least in terms of curiosity, about what the Christian faith is about. And he or she may be drawn ultimately in a saving way to Jesus Christ because of your witness. And so it's clear here in verse 1, he's he's talking about non-Christian employers, right? Because those are the ones who would be tempted to mock your faith, to um, blaspheme God, uh, to speak lightly of sacred things. So this applies to how we impact our non-Christian employers. 
That's the precept, and, and that's the purpose. It has a missionary motivation behind it. But then in verse 2, Paul gives a prohibition. In the first half of verse 2, he says, Those who have believing masters, we could say employers, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. That is, brothers in Christ. That word disrespectful uh, in the Greek literally means to look down on someone. Uh, It means to think little of them, to esteem them lightly, um, to devalue or depreciate them, to deem them as unworthy. And you see, that's exactly the opposite of what we're told to do in verse 1. We're to regard our own masters or employers as worthy of all honor. But to disrespect them is to look down on them, to consider them unworthy of honor. And the thinking may be like this. Well, hey, you're a believer in Christ just like I am. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You're no better than I am. And because we are equals in Christ... That becomes an excuse for us being disrespectful to them at work. You're not better than I am. You're not above me. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. And and we make this mistake. We think that because our boss is a believer and therefore equal in Christ, that therefore they should be treated as an equal in a work setting. And that's not true. Because in the work setting, God has placed them over you. In the work setting, they are your superior. Not in terms of their intrinsic worth, but in terms of their position. They are over you in the Lord. So instead of using their Christian faith, their shared belief with you as an excuse for slacking off, as showing a flippant attitude or expecting preferential treatment, Paul says you should be all the more diligent in your duties. And he gives the perspective in the second half of verse 2. Let me read the whole verse again. Those who have believing masters or employers must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the more or serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And this is consistent with what Paul writes elsewhere, right? Most of us are familiar with Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to whom? To those who are of the household of faith, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here Paul says, since believers are beloved, meaning beloved by God, and therefore they are beloved by us as our brothers and sisters in Christ, We should want to bless them in every way we can. Not take advantage of them, but to bless them, to benefit them. With that in mind, let me close by just sharing six qualities that should characterize every Christian employee. Six qualities that should characterize every Christian employee. And this is taken from this passage along with a couple of the other cross-references we've looked at in the last few moments. And I'll express these characteristics as exhortations to you. Number one, be compliant. Be compliant. Scripture says, be submissive to them in everything. Not because they deserve it, but because God desires it. 
and we make it our aim to please him. So be compliant. Number two, be courteous. Don't be rude or argumentative, but treat your boss as worthy of all honor. Show by your words, your attitude, your facial expressions, your overall demeanor, just how beautiful and attractive the gospel is. For you serve the Lord Christ. Number three, be constructive. Let your attitude in words, and by this I mean even to your fellow employees, or to even friends outside of work, contribute to the building up rather than tearing down of your employer. As Bing Crosby used to sing, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Number four, be credible. By that I mean be a man or woman of integrity. Notice what Paul said, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Your expense reports are legitimate expense reports. You're not looking for ways to bleed the company. You're looking for ways to bless the company. Joseph was an outstanding example of this. Genesis 39.6 says that his superior Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything except what he was going to eat. He entrusted everything to Joseph, who was a slave. How much more so should that be true in our case? A Christian employee should be the most trusted person on the job. A Christian employee should be the most trustworthy person in the company. So be credible. Number five, be committed. Be committed. Fellow believers, you can invite coworkers to church. You can share the gospel with them over lunch or break time. You can listen to Christian music in your workspace if they allow it. But if you have a poor work ethic, you discredit your witness. Scripture says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Remember, it is ultimately the Lord Christ that you serve. And that leads to the last point, number six, be Christ-like. <laughs> that really is the all-encompassing character quality. Not only is the Son of God our master, but he also became our servant, didn't he? Philippians 2 verse 7 says that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Doulos, the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 6.1. And since Jesus, through his selfless life, his substitutionary death, has done more for us than we could ever do for him in a billion years. He is worthy at the very least, of our very best, is he not? And if we are serving the Lord Christ, and he says, by honoring your employer, you are honoring me, then that means we should give our best at work as much as anywhere else. This is our reasonable service. This is our spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
the truth of your word and how it convicts us of sin, shows us where we're wrong, instructs us in the way of righteousness, and equips us for every good work. Lord, we pray that your word would have that effect in our hearts today. Lord, help us to know, too, that we can never become a good Christian employee without first becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. To see ourselves as belonging to him. Trusting in Christ to deliver us from sin and death and to make us his own treasured possession. So, Father, I pray if there's any man or woman, boy or girl here in this room today, here within the sound of my voice, that has not yet placed their faith in you for the forgiveness of sins, who have not yet entrusted themselves to you as your treasured possession. God, I pray that today they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And help them to know that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only our Savior, but also our Sovereign. Our Master in all things. Lord, we who belong to Christ, help us to represent you well in the workplace. Lord God, we ask your forgiveness for the times that we have failed to do that. Through laziness, through procrastination, through a lack of punctuality, through a constant critical spirit, complaining. Lord, there are many ways, surely, that we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And yet we rejoice that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Lord, what better day than here on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, before we begin a new work week, to recommit ourselves afresh to being the best employees we can be for your honor and glory and for the salvation of our co-workers and our supervisors. Help us to keep this at the forefront of our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.